We're finishing our Bible study through the letter of 1 Thessalonians today. Although this letter was written to a group of followers of Jesus some 2,000 years ago, we've discovered it to be relevant for our own lives and the times we're living in. And that's really part of the wonder and the blessing of the Word of God, isn't it? It continues to be relevant, speaking to our hearts and changing our lives throughout the ages, even in our own. Well, before we look at the last verses of this letter, I want to do a bird's eye view of the story of the church of Thessalonica and the content of the letter to set us into the context of these people's lives one more time. During what has come to be referred to as Paul's second missionary journey, Paul, Silas, and Timothy After establishing a new church in the city of Philippi, they left there and they traveled westward, westward, deeper into the province of Macedonia, some hundred miles, to the largest city of the province and its capital, Thessalonica. There was a Jewish synagogue in that city, so following his usual practice when he came to a new place, Paul went to the synagogue on the next three Sabbath, and he preached about Jesus being the Christ, prophesied about in the Jewish scriptures what we know as the Old Testament. And some of the Jews were persuaded and they believed, as well as many of the Gentile men and women who were present there. The number of believers that took hold of this truth, that formed this new church. But some of the Jews in that city were jealous of Paul's quick influence with the people. They wanted to drive him out of their city, so they hired some thugs from the city, and they formed a mob, and they had him start a riot. The riot was so intense and dangerous that Paul and his companions, they had to sneak out of the city under the cover of darkness. After leaving Thessalonica, Paul went further west, about 40 miles to the city of Berea, and began preaching about Jesus there. But when the Jews back in Thessalonica heard that Paul was at Berea, they went there and they turned the crowds against him, forcing him from that city too. Paul then traveled south to Athens and then to Corinth, where he remained for the next year and a half, establishing the church at Corinth. Paul remained concerned for this new church that had been established back in Thessalonica, though. He knew the believers there were suffering under a great deal of persecution for being followers of Jesus. Paul had only been there with them for three short weeks. They were just babies in the faith. How would they respond and hold up under this pressure of the persecution? Would they give up? Would they turn back from being followers of Jesus? Well, when Paul could stand it no longer, he sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to strengthen and encourage the believers there, and then bring word to him about how they were doing. Rather than Paul's worst fears being realized, Timothy brought back good news from the Thessalonian church. Instead of the persecutions and other difficulties diminishing their faith, they were clinging to Jesus Christ all the more. Paul then wrote a letter to encourage them and to address some of the questions and issues that Timothy informed him about. And that letter is what we have in our Bible called 1 Thessalonians. The letter opens with encouraging words about the beautifully transformed lives of the believers in 
in Thessalonica, they had embraced the gospel of Jesus and they have allowed the Holy Spirit to change them from the inside out. Then in chapters 2 and 3, Paul responds to accusations that were being made against him back in the Thessalonian church that he was a fraud, a swindler who had tried to take advantage of the people. And that the reason that he had not returned to them yet was because he was afraid to face his critics. His critics were in large part that same group of Jews who had ran him out of town before. In truth, Paul had fully supported himself while he was in Thessalonica, taking nothing from the people there. And he longed to see the believers who he loved deeply. Well, in the first half of chapter 4, Paul exhorts the believers to continue to live in a manner that pleases God, holy and honorable. Then in the second half of chapter 4, in the first half of chapter 5, Paul addresses questions that the Thessalonians had about believers who have died and about how and when the second coming of Jesus would take place. And then in the last half of chapter 5, which we will be looking at today, Paul addresses a number of other questions and issues in rapid-fire succession. It's as if he suddenly realizes that he's running out of parchment paper, so he starts cramming in his final remarks, trying to get it all fit into the last remaining bit of parchment. For us, these final verses provide a rich and densely packed set of instructions, advice, and commands to take hold of and follow. So flip over in your Bibles, if you're not already there, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and we'll begin reading in verse 12. He says, Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Now, I'm reluctant to say a lot about these verses because I'm a leader in this church. It could sound very self-serving if I were to just hover and just kind of camp on these verses for a while. You guys be going, oh, I see how it is. These verses say this. They say, leaders in the church who serve with integrity, working hard among us, caring for us, courageously and compassionately admonishing us, should be held in high regard and with love. It makes me think of Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, where the writer says something very similar. He writes this, Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. The second half of verse 13 says, Live in peace with each other. This is a, important for us to take uh, hold of and take to heart in our lives at this moment we're living in, for sure. I mean, there is so much anger and mistrust between people right now in our society. We must not let that anger and division and mistrust spill over into our own relationships with each other within the church. We must determine as brothers and sisters in Christ, to live in peace with each other. We don't have to agree with each other about everything. There will be differences. Some things in our society need to be challenged and fought over. But we must preserve the peace among us. We are one family, and we must love each other 
and not let anything tear us apart. Ephesians 4, 6, Paul wrote, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Romans 12, 18 says, If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Let us live in peace with each other. 14, and we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encouraging the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Let's take a look at each of these instructions and commands that we have here. The first is warn the idle and disruptive. We talked about this issue when we were studying verse 11 of chapter 4 of this letter, where Paul told us there to lead a quiet life, to mind our own business, to support ourselves and do our fair share of the work. Same idea is being expressed here. It's interesting, I think, that Paul tells us to warn the idle and the disruptive. This kind of person needs to be confronted about their behavior and attitude. A characteristic of this person is that they are always judging and criticizing and being a busybody about other people's lives while being clueless about their own bad behavior. They are the kind of people that will not just get it and figure it out. They need to be confronted, unfortunately. He says, encourage the disheartened. Disheartened. It means those who are discouraged, those losing heart, those who don't have courage. We have a tremendous opportunity in the days we're living in to encourage the disheartened right now. Look around you and reach out to those who are losing heart, who are afraid, who are discouraged, who are beaten down by life, who are just feeling crushed. He says, help the weak. The word translated help, it includes the idea of holding on to and standing with. The weak among us need to know they're not alone, that they've not been forgotten. We need to come alongside them and give them strength and support. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. I don't think any of us want to see that word everyone there, do we? No one is excluded from the list of those we're to be patient with. We're called to be patient with everyone, even the annoying and the offensive, the jerks, the arrogant, the insensitive. In fact, these are the ones we need to be patient with the most, isn't it? Make sure nobody pays back wrong for wrong. First Peter 3.9, Peter wrote, Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, 
because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Did we read that right? Repay evil with blessing? Yeah, that's what it says. It says, always strive to do what is good for each other and everyone else. I think it's interesting that both the admonition to make sure nobody pays back wrong for wrong and the admonition to always strive to do what is good for each other and everyone else, it includes this element of us looking out for others in this regard. See, contrary to the prevailing attitude of our culture, it's not all about me. And I'm not to just look out for my own interests and well-being. I should be looking out for others. I should be a defender of the good and a protector of the weak and the disadvantaged. That's what it means to make sure nobody pays back wrong for wrong and to strive to do what is good for everyone else. Verse 16. Rejoice always. We learned in our study of the letter of Philippians a few weeks back that rejoicing is not something that happens to us, but something that we choose to do. Joy is not a response to the quality of our circumstances, but a byproduct of being in relationship with Jesus Christ and making him the center of our life. Philippians 4.4, Paul wrote, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. 17, pray continually. Leon Morris commenting on this verse, he wrote this. It's not possible for us to spend all our time with the words of prayer on our lips, but it is possible for us to be all our days in the spirit of prayer, realizing our dependence on God for all we have and are, being conscious of of his presence with us wherever we may be and yielding ourselves continually to him to do his will. Pray continually. Verse 18, give thanks in all circumstances. We can give thanks to God in all circumstances of our life when we embrace the truth in Romans 8.28 that all things that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. We believe God is sovereign over everything, and we believe he is always ultimately doing good. When we embrace those ideas, we are truly able to thank him in all circumstances. It says, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. This applies to all three of these commands. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. We ask the question, what is God's will for me? Here's some of it. Right here. Rejoice. Pray and give thanks. Verse 19. says, do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. But test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. It's believed that Paul is making reference to a particular situation in the Thessalonian church here. And that's why this is maybe a little bit confusing for us. It's like we've been kind of dropped into the middle of a conversation here. It's thought that there were believers in the church of Thessalonica who were speaking words of prophecy 
We're not given any particulars about what those words of prophecy were. They could have been uh, everything from encouraging the believers in their faith to insights and guidance about something going on in an individual's life to predictions about future events. Words spoken under the exercising of the gift of prophecy are essentially those that are said to be thus says the Lord. They are words from the Lord. They are words where the prophet, the one speaking, is the Lord's mouthpiece. It isn't always uh, words that are predictions of the future. They can be words of encouragement, exhortation, but they're words spoken from God. Well, rather than doing their due diligence in considering these various prophecies that were being spoken in the light of scriptures uh, and the teachings from the apostles, some of the people in the church, maybe all of the people in the church, the majority of the people in the church, we don't know, they were immediately dismissing all of these prophecies as nothing but nonsense. Paul tells them to check their attitude at the door about these prophecies that are being spoken. He says, the Holy Spirit can indeed speak through people. It's important to not quench the Spirit by preventing this gift of the Holy Spirit from being expressed in their church. But they should always also test what is said to ensure that it is something truly from the Lord or not. Not everything that a person claimed was from the Lord, thus says the Lord, really was from the Lord. If what was said contradicted Scripture or the teachings from the apostles, then it was obviously not from the Holy Spirit. For something that sounded fringy, they should put it to the side until further investigation could be done to confirm or deny its origin of being from the Lord or not. But as a general course, he says prophecies should not simply be scoffed at and dismissed. This is still a difficult issue for the church in our own day. Some churches disallow any exercising of the gift of prophecy, while other churches don't test what is claimed to be a word from the Lord, accepting everything without any discernment at all. So on one extreme, there are churches devoid of any supernatural moving of the Holy Spirit. And on the other extreme, there are churches that look like a three-ring circus, free-for-all. People rolling around on the floor, barking like dogs, clucking like chickens, interrupting the disciplined teaching of the Word of God. Everything needs to be measured and scrutinized using the Scriptures to ensure that what is said is really from the Lord but indeed, the Holy Spirit still moves in a supernatural way in our day too. And that should not be scoffed at or dismissed. Verse 23 says, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. This is a wonderful blessing. The Lord is the God of peace. He's the one who has made peace between us and himself 
through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. We celebrated that through communion today. He's the spirit of peace who fills us. He's the one who creates unity and peace between us. The holy life that we're called to live is impossible for us to carry out in our own strength. The Lord is the one who's doing this wonderful work of sanctifying us through and through, it says, from head to toe, all of us. Our entire being, he says, will be kept blameless by the Lord at the coming of Jesus. The Lord is faithful. He will do it. I love that. The Lord is faithful. He will do it. Rejoice, child of the living God. 25, brothers and sisters, pray for us. I like this very personal request by Paul, asking them to pray for him. Even the Apostle Paul, that great lion of the faith, he needs the prayers of his brothers and sisters in the Lord. We need to pray for each other. Pray for me. I'll pray for you. Let us pray for each other. Verse 26. Greet all God's people with a holy kiss. Greeting one another with a kiss was common in the time and culture Paul was writing. This is still a common form of greeting in some cultures even today. It was not a romantic gesture. It was a holy kiss, a pure, heartfelt, affectionate kiss as brothers and sisters in the Lord. Uh, This command here should not be understood as a literal command to be carried out between us, though. It should recognize the cultures uh, that we're in and the times that we're in. So especially in the light of coronavirus pandemic that we're in the middle of right now, don't greet one another with a kiss. In fact, we shouldn't even be shaking hands right now uh, if we were to follow all of the social distancing guidelines that we've been giving. Instead, we are to take this command as greet one another warmly in the Lord in whatever way is appropriate for the time, the culture, and the situation that you're in, whether it's a kiss, a hug, a handshake, a fist bump, or nodding with kind, loving eyes behind a face mask. 27 says, I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. This remark, it gives us a little insight into how these letters were treated. They were intended to be read to everyone in the church. And I, I, I picture everyone gathering for worship and it's announced that a special letter from the Apostle Paul has arrived. Everyone would be very excited to have this letter from the Apostle Paul coming to their church. They, they all gather together. A, a, attention is called, and the letter would be then read out loud for all to hear. The letter would then be preserved and carefully protected in a special way so that the church could read that letter again and again. It, it would be one of the most treasured possessions of the church. See, instead of having... A Bible in everybody's hand like we do, we take that for granted. They would have that one letter 
that the apostle had written to them. And that letter would be copied and then that church would share a copy of that with the other church over there and that church would share the copy of their letter with them and they would pass these around and preserve and carefully take care of those. These were precious possessions. Eventually these would have been collected together and they now form what we call our New Testament, which is a collection of all of these letters and writings by the apostles. Finally, verse 28 says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. The closing blessing by Paul, it brings our attention back to the core of what we depend on, doesn't it? The, the grace of God given to us through our Lord Jesus. And so ends this letter of First Thessalonians. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, we thank you that you preserved this letter for us. This letter written some 2,000 years ago and we still have a copy of it for us to read and to study and learn from. Thank you so much for protecting and preserving these letters that we have in our Bible. Lord, help us to appreciate the Word of God. Help us to appreciate our Bible and all of the wonderful stuff that it has in it for us, for us to grow and to know you better. I ask, Lord, that you'd encourage your people. you touch us, each one, by your Spirit. Lord, that you would continue your good work in us. We love you, Lord. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.